you guessed it. It's Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 582, where I answer listener questions about enterprise sales, crowdfunding, replacing yourself, and things that every B2B SaaS founder should know. Today, Anar Volset joins me. He's my co-founder with TinySeed. He joins me because there's a question specifically about TinySeed, and he knows a lot about enterprise sales, and it was just a good fit to bring him on the show today. I hope you're enjoying yourself on this festive time of year and that you are able to take a little bit of time away from your business, not because we don't love our businesses and enjoy what we do, but I think this is a good time of year to take a couple days and you know be with friends and family and take that little break, that mental break that can help bring you back recharged with renewed energy, wanting to you know invest in your business as we enter the new year. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. Thanks for joining me as always. Anar Volset, thanks for joining me back on the show. We got some good questions that I think are right up your alley today. Glad to be here. Let's dive into our first question from Stuart at Growth Method. Hey Rob, Stuart here, calling from a wet and windy UK. Hope you're well. Been a listener for many years. Thanks so much for the podcast. Um, I actually have a question about Tiny Seed. I recently invested a relatively small amount, $5,000, in a couple of startups via Republic for the first time through the RegCF crowdfunding offering. I'm not an accredited investor, um, but obviously can invest under RegCF. And I wondered whether you'd ever considered or would consider enabling people within your community and network and startups for the rest of us listeners um, the ability to invest in a future tiny seed fund under RegCF. I thought it'd be a really nice way of bringing together people with very similar attitudes to bootstrapping and self-funded businesses and sustainable, profitable businesses and enable them to invest one, five, $10,000 into a tiny seed fund. Really interested to get your thoughts. Thanks so much. That's a good question, Stuart. Anar, what are your thoughts? Um, yeah, I'd love to. <laughs> I'd love, I've been, honestly, I've been thinking about this for a long time, you know, with there was recent regulations and the CF thing that changed could do, you know, instead of doing like a million max uh, crowdfunding campaigns, you could do 5 million max. And, you know, there, there are some, and, and this is all good as far as I'm concerned, there are some new sort of requirements around the kind of financials you need to release and things prior to doing a crowdfunding round. But, you know, we were originally quite excited about it, particularly when we started to see funds starting to raise in this way. But the, the problem is, in the US at least, you're not actually allowed to raise crowdfunding for a fund. Like, that's actually illegal, <laughs> which most people don't know. Such a bummer. It is. It, it doesn't make any sense to me. But you can do crowdfunding for like an individual business. And so what some people have done, and I think probably most famously is like Backstage Capital. You know, they did a big crowdfunding round. They raised, I want to say, $5 million, something like that. I believe it was that, yep. Yeah, but that went into like the, the actual partnership itself. So they sold like a piece of the whatever partnership that's behind that. Legally, they aren't allowed to go in and, and take that $5 million bucks, put it in a fund as like investment money and invest that money. That's actually not legal. I wish it was, but it isn't. So that's where we are with that. Unfortunately, we can't do it. One of the things we've thought about is like, okay, do we do some sort of a parallel vehicle where like, okay, we come in, the, our fund, Tiny Seed invests in this company, and then alongside that, we sort of 
the crowdfunding whatever can come in alongside into that business but candidly it became too much of a gray area legally and honestly the the ball ache and the uh, and the compliance stuff just meant that that we wouldn't do it. I think if we were to do a, a crowdfunding type play, it would need to be us selling part of Tiny Seed the partnership, which uh, we haven't actually discussed. Maybe we should do that. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, and it's such a bummer that regulation tends to be a real hampering to fundraising, right? And to, I mean, we've we've talked about the 99 investor rule being a big pain that we're lo- literally lobbying Congress with a bunch of other folks who have, who run funds and who run into the same problem in the U.S. And then there's, there's this one, there's often tax implications of just trying to set up funds. Like we're, we're setting up our EMEA fund right now, right? The Europe, Middle East and Africa. And that's been like a month or two of your time yeah, trying yeah. to figure out how do we even set this up? And it's like, if this was all simpler, if this was stripified, you know, or if it was angelistified, like, but none of it is. And it's a, it's a lot of money. None of it is. I just, there's so much stuff in compliance and there's like, there's different, there's like the co- Cost and compliance of domiciling, say, tiny seed, you know, EMEA in Europe are just out of control compared to the U.S. or even the Caymans. And so we were like, oh, let's set up in the Caymans. But then you go to the Caymans and then you talk to European investors and they're like, oh, Cayman Islands, I don't know. So there's compliance and then this perception of it too. But there's like, like well, actually one of the things that I, that I just started paying strong attention to even beyond the whole like investment side of things is this. Have you heard about the Platform Competition and Opportunity Act that's making its way through? No. The, I, it's got nothing to do actually with what asked, but it shows it tells you that kind of thing. There's now a, a new piece of regu- regulation coming through or going through Congress where basically they're trying to almost ban big companies from buying smaller competitors, which could have a pretty devastating effect on entrepreneurship in the U.S. in general. It sort of showcases like, is it good that you can't crowdfund into a fund? I don't personally think so. Obviously, this is a selfish view, but, you know, is it good that, like, apparently we're going to ban large companies from buying smaller ones? I also don't think that's a good idea. So, I don't know. It's tough. So, thanks for thanks for the question. It's super interesting and obviously something we can't do. Wish we could. Yeah, wish we could, I think is the answer. Our next question is from Simon Thompson. Hey Rob, my name's Simon. I'm the founder of podseeker.co and my question is around enterprise plans and pricing. So if I have a standard uh, SaaS product that I'm charging a monthly subscription for, uh, approaching small to medium businesses who, who buy the product in a fairly standard way with a credit card, but now I'd like to offer that same product to uh, enterprise level companies, what are some of the things that I need to start thinking about in order to approach those companies? Um, so, for example, I know that deal breakers sometimes can be things like a single sign-on capability um, or the ability to buy with a purchase order. I'm wondering if you could expand on what some of those other deal breakers might be um, and if there's anything else I just need to be aware of before I start to approach enterprise companies with this product. And then the second part of the question is around uh, pricing. How would you price the enterprise product differently to the standard plan, assuming it's more or less the same product, but with some of these potential deal breaker features like single sign-on, for example. Thanks very much. Enterprise sales, sir. This is why I have you on this episode. You want to roll, you want to roll with this one? And I'll say what he said when you're done. <laughs> what he said, yeah. So that actually often comes up like in tiny companies. It's like, and often it's it's people come along and they say, oh, I have this big contract and like they're you know stoked to have the logo or whatever. But now they're asking for like, they're redlining my terms of service or they're asking for custom contracts or, you know, all this stuff. They're sending me a security questionnaire. What do I do? And my standard answer is like, you get them on the enterprise plan, you make them pay a ton more. <laughs> like my sort of rule of thumb is almost like, 
and this shocks people is like you know if you have a public pricing you should probably 20 exit as your base price for the you know call us uh, enterprise type plan so and my, my general view also on enterprise planning is like it's sort of a binary search to try to find the, the trade-off in terms of pain points and value and it's probably higher than you think the kind of things that we often see for enterprise type triggers where basically what it boils down to is okay if you want this then you need to be on an enterprise plan like i said any kind of custom contract like if if you go back and forth like if you have a hundred dollar a month SaaS business and people start sending you like word docs of your terms of service redlined by their legal definitely this is an enterprise plan like you're not going to want to do that just like if your lawyer's cheap he's 300 400 bucks an hour you're going to burn through like two years worth of SaaS income just having him review the red lines you know what I mean so that's a definite one for me and and also there's some random stuff in there you want to be quite careful of you don't want to just say like okay fair enough yeah sure red line done I want the big contract or in some cases the medium-sized contract because you end up in some scenarios where they're putting in like identification clauses where like if they get sued using your software you'll cover all expenses <laughs> like you, you definitely want to avoid that other things are common are like you know payment methods like a lot of the time people big contracts they want to run it through procurement and then once it goes through procurement it'll be negotiated again because that's what procurement does like they get paid basically to negotiate contracts and so any kind of like we need to go through a different kind of com you know payment system or like you sign up for this service that we use to handle in invoicing that to me is an enterprise trigger like i said very often you get like security review questionnaires and that's like less of a trigger it sort of suggests that the business is quite large and so it, I guess it could be a trigger those kind of things I would say I wouldn't fill out like a 300 question security questionnaire if they're trying to if you're selling something for $29 a month but I think what you'll end up with if you're wanting to do enterprise sales you need to come up with some sort of a solution for that like we see that over and over again it just becomes a must-have for a lot of enterprise customers so you can get away or sort of around that or bypass most of the pain that comes from that with something like an soc2 certification or there was one in europe that i prefer it's an iso something or other but it's basically a variation on soc2 other kind of certifications like hipaa compliance stuff and you might actually be asked to basically become quote-unquote HIPAA compliant just by saying, hey, you know, sign this, what's it called, to be a, I forget what it's called now. It's part of the HIPAA process. You have to have all your providers sign a certain agreement. And often people won't even ask, like, hey, are you HIPAA compliant? They'll just say, hey, just sign this agreement. And so HIPAA is another one that's common. Some of the more sort of esoteric stuff that you'll see, particularly for very large clients and very large things, is like they want the code on escrow. It's not unusual. They're like, you know, you're a small company, most likely. They're an enormous company. If they're going to, you know, use you in, a, in some any kind of mission critical way, if you go under, they want to be able to get to the software and you do that stuff. And like the key thing there is like make sure they pay for it. Like if they if they want to pay to put your code on escrow with a third party, then that costs money. So they should pay for it. And then, you know, some of the other stuff that comes in are like, you know, custom development work, which can be triggers for enterprise, but also can be like a good way to, you know, subsidize future app development, basically. Just make sure that you get the IP and the right to resell and things so they don't own the, the changes. And then there's some stuff that I would almost never do. Like and in some cases you get like, yeah, we want to do a big contract, but as part of this contract, we get a right of first refusal if you get acquired so we can buy you. And I'm like, there's certain things that might, they might put in enterprise type contracts where basically you're snookering yourself in the future acquisitions that you don't want to do almost, almost no matter what. So yeah, that's sort of a, the high level view of that.
Yeah, and I'll add a few to those. I think you may have mentioned single sign-on, custom contracts for sure. Yeah. And then the other one I, I remember with back in the drip days is the moment someone said, all right, so we want to use drip, but we want to integrate with Salesforce. I was like, ding, oh, yeah. like if you're paying for <laughs> Salesforce or any other really, you know, any big expensive piece of software, that's a trigger. And then like an export or an integration with like a data lake or a, I guess that's just expensive software, but like, you know, what is it? Is it Redshift, the Amazon equivalent? Redshift. Yeah. Seg- Segment's face is famous for this. Like Segment used to be like, it's $99 a month, except if you want to like hook up your data to Redshift, in which case it's 150000 Right. And, and that's the thing. Like if I were a SaaS app and most of my plans were $100 a month or 200 a month. And like, if, if one of these triggers happens, one or more of them, uh, you want to learn them early when it comes about, suddenly the price has to be 20, 25 grand a year, or it's not worth doing this. Like it's not worth doing the process. The moment I hear procurement, figure dozens and dozens of your hours to get through it and a huge hassle and months potentially. We had this expression in electrical contracting when we'd bid on a job there are no bad jobs there are just jobs without enough money in them because even the worst and so you know there's no procurement process that's bad there's just procurement process where you didn't charge enough money to make it worth your while right or or the sso or the redline tos or whatever all that back and forth you just have to that's why enterprise software is so expensive it's because it's not the software the software is pretty much the same as the one you charge 50 bucks for but it's it's this. So excellent. That's a good question. I hope that was a helpful answer, Simon. All right. Had a tweet from Amar Gosi. I think it's G-H-O-S-E. And it's just Amar on Twitter. He said, if you had a company making one to 1.5 million annually and you wanted to step away from your business, then he has a few questions. How would you go about finding a replacement? Where would you search? How would you structure an offer? What questions would you ask? And I don't recall specifically if he was saying it was like a SaaS company, but let's assume it's like a, it's a startup. It's a tech company. This is not a dry cleaner, right? It's a, maybe he sells info products or maybe it's SaaS, but I actually chimed in and responded with some tweets about it, but I did like 280 characters. And this just deserves way more than that, right? Because it's a complicated question. So, I mean, you can answer, let's, let's start with the first one. Like, where would you look? How would you go about finding someone? And, you know, I guess, how would you structure and, and how would you evaluate them? I'm going to think about structure more than anything else, like where you find, because I'm not a hiring genius exactly, which is effectively what you're trying to do in many ways, shapes, or forms. The way that I think about it is there's basically, well, sort of three different variations on this. So one of them is just like trying to find someone to hire, like someone to replace you, like a CEO type. And the problem with just like saying, oh, I'm going to pay this guy or girl like 150, 180,000 a year is that you might not actually find anyone very good just for the base salary. So you got to figure out some way to incentivize them in some way, shape or form. And I think you could obviously do like the whole like standard stock options nature. You probably have to, for something like this, you'd probably have to give the person like 10, 15% of the company. If they're going to run it full time and you're truly going to step back, I think the very minimum for like someone good would be that, that kind of an equity options. And then the problem comes like, okay, what happens if this doesn't work out? If this person is not very good at what they do? Is there a clawback? Like, how do you, you know, how do you get them off the cap table if that doesn't make sense? So actually, like, one of the things to look at is is how they do it with what's called search funds. Do you know, do you know the structure that these guys use? So a search fund is like, basically a search fund is like, okay, someone goes out, they look to acquire a business, they don't have any money, but they have some investors, and then they go out, they acquire the business, the investors bring in the money, and then, you know, the operator or whatever goes along. And the way that that works is, because obviously the operator who's buying the business doesn't have any any capital most of the time. 
And so they, they can't technically help buy the business. So the way that works usually is that there's some sort of a preferred return to the investors, you know, 4%, 6%, 10%, whatever. And then after that, like when a, when a company sells or some sort of liquidity went, then there's a profit split between the investors and the founders. So the nice thing about that structure is basically what it says is, okay, if you're a terrible operator, you're not able to grow the business, you don't really get anything because you got a salary and that was it. But the investors get most of the return because of the preferred return hurdle. But if you're amazing at it and you triple this business, then as the operator, you get rewarded quite handsomely because you get a good chunk of the profit at the end. So that's, that's one way to do it. I mean, honestly, it's hard, like particularly in this size, like one to one and a half, like it's like, it's valuable enough, but is it really a big enough opportunity for somebody like someone who can come in and run a one, one and a half million ARR business can also probably come in and run like a five, 10 million ARR business where the upside is much bigger. So it's a very tricky question. I think honestly, one of the things you should ask yourself if you want to step back is like, why don't just sell it? You know, you could sell it, roll some equity. That means basically keeping a piece of the equity still. So you get some upside if things go well, but you get some chips off the table. So I think it's very hard, like, like almost impossible to just base just on salary alone, find someone super competent to sort of just take over the reins and, and run it because the incentives aren't quite aligned there. So I'm a great believer in incentives. Yeah. And that's how I think about it too, is incentives. It's, I think that if someone's going to run this business, I was thinking along the lines of, you know, if it's already growing at X dollars per month, then if someone does nothing, that will kind of continue. It'll eventually plateau and go down. But if someone doesn't improve the business, it'll keep doing that. So that was going to be my mental baseline of like looking back six months and saying, what's been the average new MRR added each month? And that's the baseline. And if it does that, there's no bonus for this person. Now they should probably still, I think they should still get equity in case of an exit, but there's no annual or quarterly payout to them. And then I think they should get a salary and then some type of performance bonus based on how much they're able to grow it. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things, I know that one of the people that do this actually is, or f- from what I hear, they're pretty secretive, is Constellation Software. You know, this is a big firm out of Canada that does, buys a lot of businesses and they have operators in-house, they take it over. And I think the way they do it is, I think they do something like set very aggressive goals for, you know, for growth or for, for top line revenue. And if you get to that, those sort of top line revenues, you get like a hefty, hefty chunk of that payout, like I think 30, 40% of whatever comes in or something like that. So that makes sense. And then I think on what questions I would ask, I mean, that back to your point, it's going to be really hard to find someone to do this because the questions you want to ask are, have you done exactly this before? And almost no one's going to say yes, because if they have, why are they working for you? You know what I mean? It's like an unusual size. And so you're going to have to have someone who, I don't know, it's like, is your business, is it software that's mostly built? You know, is it SaaS that's kind of just one feature and you don't need a bunch of product management and it's really just a growth exercise? Well, then you need to find someone who's a good strategist and implementer there. Or does it need to be truly like a SaaS CEO? Again, I don't know if this SaaS company. Yeah, so there's challenge there. I also, when I heard it, I was like, I don't know, man, take your millions off the table. And I I like the idea you had, though, that I wouldn't have thought of, which is to keep a piece of it. You keep 10, 20% so that you, you could feasibly have some of the upside. Awesome. Well, thanks for, well, thanks for the question. Amar just asked it on Twitter, so it wasn't like he sent it into the show, but uh, he did note at the end, he said, asking for a friend, winky face. So I thought that was, that was kind of fun. Next question is from Luke Embry. He's the founder and CEO of Backup.io. It's B-A-K-U-P.io. He has a couple questions, and I think I'll just jump to his question about software demos. What is the best way to give a demo for a SaaS product? And he gives two options, present a 10 to 15 minute PowerPoint 
or go straight in with a shared screen demo of the actual product. What do you think? Well, I have an opinion on what you shouldn't be doing. <laughs> What's it? <laughs> shouldn't be showing every feature? Yeah, like don't like don't confuse a sales a sales call or a sales demo with the training session. That's my number one mistake I see people make. They're like, because they're deep in their software, they know all the stuff. They may even have done research on all the potential things that the buyer could possibly want to do with this based on their particular scenario and things, and that's great. But if you spend like for half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour, just training on every possible thing the software could ever possible do, a lot of the time what you end up is just overwhelming the buyer who's going to be like, you know what, I had pain that I thought this software might might help me solve but given how complicated this software is i think this might be more painful so maybe i don't buy it all so that's probably my main piece of advice there yeah and i've seen demos both done both ways with presentations or with demo the actual product i think the way to make a demo the actual product go really well is it should obviously be populated with data and you should be touching on just a couple pain points and you should be listening more than you talk. It's like you want to find out what the prospect's goals are because they might, especially if you have a software that's a lot of features, they may only want to use one corner of it and then you don't really need to go through all of it, right? You ask them like, what's your use case? What's your job to be done? What do you need this software to do? And then like, then answer that question throughout the demo, right? And pause to let them ask questions. So there's some really good information on close.com's blog and Steli Efti has written several, he and his staff have written several ebooks on giving demos that do really well. Also, frankly, youtube.com slash microconf and we have a sales playlist and you can go through there and it is videos uh, of talks, microconf talks from Steli and a few other folks who have talked about exactly this. And these are like literally world experts on this topic of how to do a demo. So, I mean, personally, I like to see software demoed because I'm a product person. And so if you show me PowerPoints, I have the thing of, well, if, if the product was good, you would probably show me the product. But I don't, everyone doesn't feel that way. Everyone doesn't feel that way. So I don't want to make my opinion the gold standard of it because I do know of folks who run successful sales processes with uh, PowerPoint demos. All right, Anna. So for our last question of the day, I actually went to Cora. We still have a couple questions in the queue, but I don't feel like we're going to have a lot of back and forth on it. So I might do it solo at a time in the future. And you know what is super annoying to me is that I typed in startups in Cora, and the first like eight or 10 results, it's all about how do I raise funding? What does an angel investor need to know in order to invest in me? Should I raise angel investor? Why isn't anyone talking about building businesses? This is my annoyance with the whole narrative is that everybody, people want to build a slide deck instead of building a damn business like seriously this pisses me off i invest in startups and this pisses me off and now's a good time to mention the tiny seed syndicate rob yeah. <laughs> a new ways for bootstrap founders a later stage to get funding there it is <laughs> tinyseed.com slash syndicate if you want to know more, but also tune into this podcast and everything around microconf and all of our education about how to actually build a real business that sells real product to real customers for real money instead of sitting there flapping your gums all the time like these people do just about, it's just like go build a business, seriously. It's weird though. Like it's weird. Like I do sometimes think like I, I know for a fact, like having a, a real business launched and things and then going out to raise money sometimes can be harder because then you have actual metrics and sh to show and That's things. That's only in the Bay Area. That's in like Silicon Valley. Like I don't know though. Like I think a lot of the time people are better off just sort of hiding their numbers or certainly like don't do projections. Like here's my thing about projections. Like if you're going to, like I don't know how we end up with fundraising talk, but if you're going to put a deck together and do fundraising, don't put future financial pro forma financials, like future financial projections in there because the, the only thing you're going to do is disappoint your most 
optimistic investors. Most people will think you're full of shit and won't hit it. And some people, a small number, will think you're going to be much bigger than this. And when you tell them the number, they're just, it's, they're just going to be disappointed on the downside. Yeah, I still think outside the Bay Area, like revenue is revenue is traction, like revenue, especially in like SaaS, you know, B2B. Here's this question. It's an interesting, it's kind of a, I don't know, philosophical one maybe, but it's what one or two things should every entrepreneur working on a B2B SaaS startup know? And maybe it's three, maybe it's four. We, let's not put a limit on it, but like, what are some fundamental things that you feel like startup founders should know? And some folks who we talk to in MicroConf, Tiny Seed, to this podcast, know most of these things. And other people, I think, don't. Well, it depends on what kind of thing, are you, how you frame it. Like, should know. Like, if I ask them about their business, there, there are certain things that I think they should know. Right. Their numbers. Know your numbers. Like, your, your MRR, your RC. Their numbers. The yep. key. That's what I care churn. about. Like, you should know your revenue churn. You should know your logo churn. You should know your ACV. You should know for different cohorts. You should know my bigger customers churn at this rate, my smaller customers churn at that rate. Like, that, that's the thing I think, I think you just should know. But I'm not sure that's what they meant. <laughs> no, that's a that's a great answer though, right? I think another one for me is that like think in years, not months. Like know that this is gonna take a really long time because SaaS takes long. There's a reason that Tiny Seed is a year-long accelerator and no one else is. Every other accelerator I know of is three is 90 days. And we do that for a reason, because SaaS is just this very long ramp in almost all cases, right? That's true. I mean, one of the, the flip sides of that too is like one of the things I, I think B2B, particularly B2B SaaS founders should know is that like their businesses are sellable and valuable at an earlier stage than most other startups. Like I, I feel like sometimes I'm frustrated talking to ex-founders who have sold their business and I'm like, whoa, you left like 3x off on the table by selling to somebody who sort of did not took advantage of you exactly, but like you didn't fully understand the value of what you had. The fact is you get a B2B SaaS business north of say, you know, a million a year, it's a super valuable asset that you shouldn't just flip for seller discretionary earnings multiples or anything like that. Yeah, no, that is an interesting point. I think another one is that for most SaaS companies, as you grow, if you're growing really fast, then money will be a problem. It's hard. Um, I've been in that position where we were growing fast and it's like the growth didn't backfill. Like we needed money. We either needed to raise money or sell, or I needed to pull more money out of my personal, like growth costs money. But the second thing is that the other biggest problem for most companies, not all, is going to be finding good people and keeping them around. I know that people don't, like we're developers. We don't want to hear that, you know, because we want to build SaaS software. It should be automated, but like building a team is crucial. Having some people you can rely on, even in the lifestyle, I often talk about there's lifestyle SaaS or lifestyle startups where truly you're just building an income stream and it's a 10, 20, 30 grand a month, 90% net profit. And then there's the more ambitious, you know, whatever you want to call it. It's like the growth bootstrappers that I, I think about. But either of those paths, you still need a person or a 10 to back you up so that you're not constantly on support, you know, and you're not bringing your laptop with you on vacation in case the servers go down, that you have somebody that can back you up. I actually think this sort of relates to what I was talking to before, like in, in the sense that like, I think sometimes the, the mindset needs to change a little bit once you get to a certain size. Like I think a lot of people think, you know, the more I can do, you know, the, on the fewer people, the more valuable it is. And like, I, th I guess technically speaking, it leaves you more higher profit margin on wherever you are. The fact of the matter is, is that your business isn't more valuable if you're doing the same level of revenue, but there's just you and you do everything 
versus you have a team of, say, two or three or maybe four people in place, you're just a lot more valuable business to most people than if you're the key person who need, feels like you need to do everything and like keep it on a super low budget and that sort of a thing. So that's sort of the flip side to the cash side. Is like, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, like having a team, having someone other than just you or maybe just you and your co-founder isn't a bad thing. Like it's inevitable at a certain point. I do see some particularly bootstrap founders fall into the trap of waiting too long to start that process of trying to build out a team. You bring up a really good point, and I had this epiphany. It's not an epiphany, I knew it in the past, but it just hit me like, I should say this out loud at some point, and it was exactly that. It's like, if you have a $2 million ARR SaaS company, and it's just you, I would posit it is actually harder to sell than if you had a team of five or 10, but made a lot less profit because it's not sold on the profit, right? It's that the team goes with it. Yeah. So it's, that's, I think, counterintuitive. Yeah. And it's a much more scalable business. Yeah. It's a bigger business, you know, more potential, you know, not so uh, dependent upon you and like whatever's in your head. It's just an easier business to acquire. It's an easier business to imagine how you're going to scale further. Like everything is better. And I actually don't know where the cutoff is, but certainly once you're getting in the striking distance of like a millionaire or maybe even at 500,000, I'd be like, okay, if it's just you at that point, I'd be like, why? What's wrong? Like, what is wrong with your business or you? That means you can't keep people around. Yeah, I would I would be thinking about at a minimum hiring, like the early hires are usually someone in support because just tier one support can grind you. A developer, because usually if it's just you, then you're the developer, right? So so you have a backup and can go on vacation and, and they can, whatever, they can do all the stuff so you're not grinding it out. And then of course, you know, if you're doing all the sales, it depends on the type of business. Some SaaS needs heavy sales and others don't. But certainly as a founder personally, I did some sales until the moment I could hire someone to do it because I didn't like it, right? And so if that's not your gifting or whatever, that's... Uh, these are all things you could hire out. You definitely should. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So by the time you got a two million, there are very few, like few two million ARR businesses that sanely can be run by a single person. I'm sure there's one or two out there. I'm sure there's a listener right now thinking, well, I'm doing that. But most most companies are not. They, they can't do that. I, I think the last one that comes to mind, I mean, there's a bunch. Obviously, we could throw out 10 different things to 100 different things. But I feel like finding predictable, repeatable growth channels requires like a lot of effort and it requires a lot more time than you probably think it will. And you're going to be wrong a lot of the time, either with the approach itself, that it's not in alignment or that you're not doing it right. Like, I think it's harder than most people think because they see the case studies, you know, you see a SaaS app launch and then they do the case studies of the five things they did and three of them caught on. And it's just not like that for most founders. Even founders who are having success and are growing, they often, A, either don't know what's working or B, if they know what's working, it can be a bunch of different things or it can be one. But it's often like, even when it's working, I remember always thinking, how long is this going to work? It was fleeting to me. It never, I never felt like I was in the middle of growth thing and I'm like, this is going to take us to five or 10 million. And I'm super confident in that. And it's going to work this whole time. It's like the whole time you're still looking for the next thing to get you to that next level. I think that's true. That is something that I talk to tiny seed portfolio company founders about reasonably often. And it's, it's a mistake a lot of people do because they're like, in some cases, like they have sort of half understand where business is coming from, kind of maybe, or they have like one channel that sort of works. And then they're like, oh, yeah, I'm probably going to put 500 bucks on Google ads next month. And then I might go to a conference next year. And I'm like, 
no, you're not moving anywhere near fast fast enough to do this. Like you should have a very strong preference for action when it comes to just iterating through these growth channels because most of the time you won't have a clue about what works and you're just kind of going to have to do it. You're going to have to spend enough time and money to really explore each one. And then if it don't work, move on. And, and like, you know, I think I see people, you know, sticking to their like hobby horses. <laughs> this is obviously true for like features and things too, where, you know, founders are like, well, this is what I want to build. And their market is telling them that's not what I want. I want this other thing. And you just refuse to build it. It's like, all right, well, then you've left money on the table for sure. But the same thing is also true for like channels. Like people are like, I want it to be self-serve. I want it to be content market driven. I don't want it to be cold email or in-person events or sponsorships or Google ads or, you know, integration marketing, whatever it is. Like it's, it's hard to know. But once you do find it, it tends to be disproportionate. It's not like, oh, one thing is 50% better, 30% better. It's like one channel's like, holy crap, this is 20 times better than anything else. And if you don't move fast enough, you'll probably die before you figure out which one, which isn't so good. Very good, sir. Folks want to keep up with you. On Twitter, you are Anar Volset. That's E-I-N-A-R-V-O-L-L-S-E-T. Awesome. Thanks again, sir. Thank you. Thanks for joining me again today. That was actually a fun and unexpected rant that I had. I was so angry at Quora. I'm just angry at the kind of the, I don't know, it's the tech press and the narrative around, you know, just funding, funding, funding. It's like, no, we can we can actually spend time and, in, you know, investing and growing our businesses and not just concentrating on this this lottery ticket mentality. So with all that said, I enjoyed the episode. I hope you did as well. And I will be back in your ears again next Tuesday morning. 